Hello, everyone. This is your Captain Wade speaking once again from In the Dry Dock, and I'm joined by my executive officer and co-host, Will. Welcome aboard. It's good to be back in the Dry Dock, everyone. Thanksgiving has come and gone for us Americans, and a good number of us all over the world are looking forward to Christmas. What's your favorite part about this holiday season, Will? What is my favorite part? Um, that's a good question. I always enjoy going home and seeing all my friends and family. In the Christmas season, we really try to focus on, you know, what Christmas is actually about. And so I do enjoy, you know, observing it, you know, in its true sense. But there's just so many treasured traditions that we have in the holidays, and I'm really looking forward to all of those. I could agree. Mine is the simple fact that it's one of the few times where I get to see the entire paternal side of my family. Lots of fun when we when we all get together. And to be honest, opportunities are getting fewer and fewer, mostly because my grandpa is getting older. Mm. But today we are continuing the theme of ocean liners. And to be honest, it seems like we're on a bit of an ocean liner shtick. Not really an issue for either of us, but bear with us while we indulge a little bit. Now for the <laughs> last two episodes, our topic Topics and liners were very specific to the transatlantic trade. I think the closest we got to talking about any other ocean was when the RMS Queen Mary did her final cruise around South America and up to Long Beach, where she is now. Yep. This begs the question of the Pacific Ocean. Not only is it bigger than the Pacific, but the sea lanes of the Pacific today are some of the most lucrative in the world between China, and the USA. Now, those might be called into question very soon. We may not know, but that is, that is above our pay grade for this podcast. So let's turn back the clock a little bit. So anyway, ocean liners were equally at home on the Pacific as the Atlantic. And much like the Atlantic trade, it didn't start as a luxury transportation, but as a means of emigration. Yes, I said emigration, not immigration. There's a key difference between those two words. It's not just the difference between a spelling mistake. Much like there was Ellis Island in New York City, there was the so-called Angel Island in the West that served the same purpose. That's the correct name, right, Will? Uh, yes. Yeah, Angel Island was San Francisco's kind of equivalent to Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. This is one of the reasons why there is such a strong Asian-American presence in the cities west of the Rocky Mountains. It was, uh, that was the home, uh, San Francisco was considered one of the key home ports for, the, for ocean liners and also just for the shipping trade as a whole. San Francisco Bay is considered one of the most perfect natural ports in the world from what I'm told. However, as the 19th century bled into the 20th century, ocean liners began to get bigger and more luxurious, especially when both Hawaii and the Philippines fell under U.S. control. Though both of these acquisitions were problematic at best, especially Hawaii. Now, I know, Will, you've elaborated on this to me, but for our viewership, why not explain a little bit about how Hawaii came under the control of the United States? Yeah, this is a, a sad and rather sordid tale, and it, it's an unfortunate aspect of U.S. history. And it's important when we look at 
at history and what happened that we look at it critically and we make sure that we learn from mistakes that were made. The Kingdom of Hawaii, which was the independent internationally recognized country you know, that, that ruled the islands before they became part of the U.S., stretched back to about the same time as the United States was founded. So in the, I think in the 1770s, late 1700s is when Kamehameha I, who was the first king to unify Hawaii, accomplished his mission of bringing all of the major Hawaiian islands under his control. Before that, they'd all been ruled by individual uh, chieftains. So he did this, and uh, Hawaii almost right away had to deal with European influence. The British had actually been visiting the islands even before they were unified. They referred to them as the Sandwich Islands. And so right from the very beginning of Hawaii being a modern recognized nation, they had to deal with a lot of interference and influence from various countries. And that's actually reflected in the state flag of Hawaii, which if you see it is a British Union Jack in the Canton or upper left corner. And then there are red and white and blue stripes. And the reason for this was because when the Hawaiians designed their national flag, which later became the Hawaiian state flag, they deliberately attempted to appease both the British and the U.S., in the design of the flag, and that's why it looks the way that it looks. So anyway, there had been a long history of interference. At one point, the British actually seized control of the Hawaiian Islands during the reign of Kamehameha III. I think this was in the 1840s, but they ended up uh, relinquishing control and Hawaiian sovereignty was restored. And that led to, this is interesting, so that led to the national motto of Hawaii, which is Uamaukea o kaina i kapono which were the words uttered by the king of Hawaii when this happened, when the British returned sovereignty to the crown, the, the statement means the life of the land is preserved in righteousness. What's interesting, though, is... Excellent pronunciation. I'm sorry? I said excellent pronunciation, by oh, the way. Oh, thanks. What's interesting about this, though, is that if you ask Hawaiian speakers what it means, you might get a different answer. So one time I visited the Queen Emma Summer Palace, which is a museum, one of the one of the palaces of the Royal Hawaiian um, monarchy. And the tour guide there said that it actually means the sovereignty of the land is preserved in righteousness, not the life of the land. So there's still some debate over what, what exactly that means and what the implications are. Anyway, fast forward in the 1870s and 1880s, Hawaii was a modern recognized state. They were ruled by the Hawaiian monarchy, which interestingly, after the Kamehameha dynasty died out, the Hawaiian monarchs were actually elected by popular vote of Hawaiian citizens, which is kind of interesting. You know, it wasn't a, a true democracy because there was only a certain class of people who were eligible to be the monarchs, but at least they were popularly elected. Uh, and um, what happened at this point was a lot of foreign companies had business interests in Hawaii and particularly in the sugar industry and in other agricultural industries. And they brought in a lot of foreign laborers. So by the end of the 19th century, the native Hawaiians were a minority within their own country already by that point. Um, their population had also declined because of European diseases, you know, the same story that we see with a lot of indigenous people. So King Kalakaua of Hawaii kind of saw the writing on the wall and knew that he needed to do something to try to keep Hawaii's independence. And so he actually pursued a very aggressive foreign policy. At one point, he was interested in creating the so-called Hawaiian Empire, and he tried to actually incorporate Samoa and Tahiti into the Hawaiian Empire, but that didn't end up happening. He had plans to build an ironclad battleship for the Hawaiian Navy, which never ended up happening, but they did have one warship 
uh, the Ka'i Miloa, which was a sail and steam cruiser armed with, I think, four four-inch guns. And um, he also built Iolani Palace, which is still a museum today. And that was actually the first, one of the first buildings in the world with electricity. And they had electricity in Iolani Palace before we had it in the White House. So anyway, Hawaii was actually quite modern state, but the vultures were circling. Um, Hawaii is a very strategically located island chain, as I'm sure everybody knows. And so Japan, Britain, and the U.S. were all kind of interested in taking over. And eventually, uh, Kalakaua was forced to sign what was called the Bayonet Constitution, which essentially stripped a lot of the power away from the monarchy and put it into the hands of U.S. businesses that were in Hawaii at the time. Kalakaua died when he was on a world tour. Uh, as an aside, Kalakaua was actually the first monarch of any country in the world to circumnavigate the globe, which is kind of cool. And on hmm. one of these long trips, he actually died, I believe, in San Francisco and was taken back um, in state on the cruiser USS Charleston, which uh, steamed into Honolulu. And it was a really awful day because everybody was expecting it to be the joyous homecoming of King Kalakaua. And so they all went out to meet him. And then they got the news that he was, in fact, dead and, you know, was in a coffin on the ship. So that was a really bad day for Hawaii. Um, his sister, Lili Kalani, ended up taking over uh, after him. And she was determined to resist the imperialist influences of the West and restore power to the monarchy. So she tried to reverse what was called the bayonet constitution and put power back into the monarchy's hands. What ended up happening was a bunch of U.S. businessmen, um, in particular sugar planters such as Sanford B. Dole, as in Dole Pineapple, um, essentially overthrew her government in an illegal coup and then declared what was called the Republic of Hawaii. And their assumption was that the U.S. would then immediately annex Hawaii. And this occurred in 1893. So this is before the Spanish-American War. Um, but what they didn't really count on was that Grover Cleveland, then president of the United States, and Queen Luliokalani were personal friends. She wrote him a letter saying, this is you know, unjust. Please don't annex Hawaii. This is an illegal overthrow of the monarchy. What's interesting is that Lulio Kalani's confidants, in particular her, her relative Prince Kuhio, actually wanted to launch an armed insurrection to overthrow the Republic of Hawaii and restore the monarchy. But Lulio Kalani put the kibosh on that and said, no, we're not going to resort to violence because America is going to do the right thing and restore our independence, which did not quite happen. So what ended up happening was Grover Cleveland stuck to his word and refused to annex Hawaii. But as soon as he was voted out and McKinley came in in 1898, then that blockage was no longer there. And in 1898, the United States did, in fact, annex Hawaii by annexing the Republic of Hawaii. So this has led to an interesting legal debate. There are some people who claim that because the Republic of Hawaii was not the legitimate government of Hawaii because they overthrew the monarchy illegally, and we annexed the Republic of Hawaii, technically, we don't legally own Hawaii. So... That's led to some kind of interesting debates down the line. There is still an heir apparent to the throne of Hawaii. She's like 93. So, you know, that, that possibility is there. But anyway, you know, that's, this is all probably more detail than we needed to go in for the purpose of this discussion. But that's kind of the background for why Hawaii became part of the U.S. and then leading into the Trans-Pacific trade going into Hawaii. And the other reason why we wanted Hawaii was because of Pearl Harbor, which became an extremely you know, strategic and important naval installation, which we all know about. And yesterday was the 78th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack. So 
that's kind of the background of all of this. And Honolulu is still a major port in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah. Imperialism wasn't just for countries with kings, folks. Yeah. Unfortunate, but true. The U.S. also tried its hand at it, not only with Hawaii, but like I said, with the territory of the Philippines. Now, the Philippines is an archipelago chain southeast of China. And for, I want to say, over a century at that point, it had been ruled by the Spanish. It was one of the last territories of the Spanish Empire. But the United States ended up getting embroiled in a war with the Spaniards. There's a lot of innuendo and backstabbing that goes with the start of this war, which would take way too long to get into. But for lack of a better term, the Spanish lost miserably. And the Philippines came under the territory of the United States. Now, the main reason that the United States wanted the Philippines was because it gave them an easy inroad and access to sphere of influence with China. And even at the early 20th century, China was recognized as an as a potential economic powerhouse. Now, this is all to get up to the point of why there would be an ocean liner trade in the Pacific. And one might think at first that the companies involved in the Atlantic trade would also be involved in the Pacific trade as well. That would somewhat make sense. They're in the business to make money uh, at this business. Why wouldn't they expand into operations? Well, that's not what happened. Different companies arose to fill that need. Among this group would be famous names such as the current companies of P&O, American President Lines, Canadian Pacific, and Nippon Yusin, also known as the NYK line. And as far as I know, all of these companies still exist in, in capacities. Interesting. So their ACL, missions have, have- American President Lines is actually owned by now by CMA CGM, which if you trace that all the way back is CGT, AKA the French line. Well, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> so the French own, own our butts in a way. <laughs> Anyway, um, and the Nippon Yusin line has been absorbed into a couple different companies, especially after the economic reorganization that would happen after the Second World War. But we'll get to that in a, in a later episode, I'm sure. But this brings us to my ship of the week, the Dollar Lines slash American President Lines steamship President Coolidge. Interesting fact, most of the American president line ships were named after presidents. And it is an honest to goodness American liner that looked like it was built in the, in the shipyards of Harland and Wolf in the UK. I'm serious about that. There it were, looks like one of there theirs. were, yeah. I mean, it looks like a smaller version of what the Oceanic three was expected to be. Well, we may talk about the Oceanic three later on. And I believe Will has actually mentioned it, but It was the competitor to what was going to be the Queen Mary, didn't get as far. But anyway, the keel for the President Coolidge was laid down in April of 1930. And the ship was delivered to, like I said, their original owner was Dollar Lines in 1931. And these were the largest merchant ships built in the United States up to that time. Now, we talked about the SS America, but the SS America was not part of the American Merchant Marine at this point. So 
each ship had turbo electric transmission. I seem to love turbo electric transmission because <laughs> I keep picking ships that have them. But just to recap, turbo electric is a steam generation system where you use steam power to generate electricity that then is used with electric motors to drive the props. This has quite a few advantages. One, that it decreases vibration because the propeller shafts don't have to be as long. And it also reduces engine wear because you may not necessarily have to run on both turbines at the same time. But in any case, an interesting company rivalry actually showed up with the President, uh, the President Coolidge and the President Hoover, her sister ship. In this case, their, their electric motors were built by the two preeminent electric companies of the United States, Westinghouse and General Electric. They were to the exact same specifications, but they were built by two completely different companies that also had two very different ideas about electricity, even by the 1930s. So to say, I find this quite interesting that dollar lines would actually go that route. But for a few other, uh, few, for a few other stats about the ship, the President Coolidge was, it was a medium-sized ship for all, all intents and purposes. It was smaller than the SS America, but it was almost 700 feet long. So it wasn't a small ship. And also something interesting, refrigeration, true blue electric refrigeration was pretty new at the time, but the President Coolidge actually had 67,000 cubic feet of refrigerated cargo space. So it was what was called a combination liner. It was meant to carry cargo as well as passengers. And this also shows in the, in the count of passengers that it would carry. Now, it had space for, for 1,260 passengers of all classes and a crew of 300. But that is that could actually be reduced quite a bit. But anyway, the ship was actually launched by Mrs. Calvin C. Coolidge, the, the wife of President Coolidge. And she actually broke a bottle of water that came from a stream or brook or whatever you want to call it on the Coolidge farm in Vermont. So instead of champagne, it got spring water, basically. So hmm. in any case, the President Coolidge and the President Hoover were primarily focused on what was called the San Francisco and Manila run via Kobe, Japan and Shanghai, China. And also these ships were known for a few round the world voyages that would use the Suez Canal to cross into the Atlantic. So kind of interesting there. And also they were considered extremely, I guess you could say ritzy ships, so to speak because they were designed for what were called holiday makers, which is sort of a older term for tourists. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can imagine that the Pacific and the Far East were considered exotic locales at the time, especially in the 30s. And also this is a time where, the, where America really has to start to compete or they're gonna start falling, falling behind economically. Because remember people, this is, the Great Depression. This is a time of you either make it or you're going to drown in your own debts. And I'll get to I'll get to the subject of debt in a second. 
But I find it interesting, and this is telling about American culture, but one of the amenities that is actually described with these sisters is a soda fountain. And I just think that's so American. Yeah. But anyway, in 37, her sistership, President Hoover, ran aground on the Taiwanese coast and was declared a total loss. In other words, there was nothing they could do with her. There was no bringing her back into service. So this actually drove the dollar, dollar steamship lines into extreme debt. And ultimately, in June of 1938, so less than six months later, President Coolidge was seized by the banks for an undebt paid, uh, unpaid debt of $35,000. Now think about this for our younger listeners or our college-age listeners. That's the average amount of college debt for most people. So remember inflation here. So in other words, the United States Maritime Commission, which at the time was a governing body for the merchant marine in the United States at the time, in 1938, reorganized the dollar lines as American President Line. And they would run this fleet up until the Second World War. Now, an interesting fact about the President Coolidge, and it's a bit of a bit of trivia that you may want to throw out at parties or something like that. But there was an American explorer who was known for traveling to isolated and small locales all across the world. His name was Richard Halliburton. And he disappeared in a typhoon on a custom-built Chinese junk. And he was last spotted by the President Coolidge uh, about 1,200 miles west of the Midway Islands. Okay, I got to so, say, what a way to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you got to pick, I mean, I would, you know, if I have to pick the way to go, Disappearing on a custom-made Chinese junk in a typhoon is pretty good. Yeah, I, I got to say, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. In 1941, obviously, the diplomatic situation between Japan and the United States was starting to fall apart. The United States started seeing the writing on the wall. So, ultimately, the U.S. War Department uh, began to use the President Coolidge for occasional voyages to Honolulu and Manila. So we're no longer going to China because China is overridden by Japanese at this point. So that's no good, or it's just too dangerous. So the furthest we would go now is the Philippines. And in June of 1941, the President Coolidge would be seized by the United States Navy and became a troop ship. Now, this is actually uh, before the Second World War actually starts. But when the, when the Second World War actually started for the United States, the President Coolidge would, would play her part in evacuating people from, uh, from Hawaii that were, too, uh, that were too heavily injured to be attended to uh, basically by you know, army, uh, army triage. So unfortunately, it was a bit of a trial by fire, you could say, for the President Coolidge. But her story, uh, her story had only just begun for the war. It actually gets pretty interesting at this point. So the President Coolidge actually remained in her civilian condition. Now, we talked about earlier that, the, uh, that troop ships often were painted to look like warships. The President Coolidge didn't get that treatment up until late 1942, 
when she was actually properly converted into a troop ship. So that's when she would get the the fittings for holding a bunch of soldiers, also ma more massive kitchens and uh, and hammocks also. And ultimately, she would be converted to hold about 5,000 troops. So I'm not exactly sure what that would constitute as far as military units, but that would be about a third of a division. I know that for a fact. But anyway, that's when she also got the painted haze gray that, for instance, the, uh, the Queen Mary had that earned her the name the Gray Ghost. But the President Coolidge would unfortunately not survive to see the end of the war. Now, there was an island by the name of Espiritu Santo, and the United States had set a large military base and harbor there. And just like any port that needed to, that was a strategic point, it had to be protected by mines to protect against submarines and enemy ships. Now, this was actually a problem uh, with civilian, originals, originally civilian ships. They often didn't receive tactical information that would keep them safe from the U.S. Navy. And the captain of the President Coolidge, he decided, not really knowing where the mines were, he guessed that they were there, but he didn't know exactly where they were. He went up the main channel as slowly as he could, but he didn't get lucky enough. And one mine struck in the engine room, so about amidships, and another mine hit near the stern. So she took two mines, not one, two. So anyway... Captain Nelson, that was his name, he orders abandoned ship, and actually his men didn't believe him at first, so he had to really push his point. But eventually, over the next 90 minutes, he was able to beach the ship and get all 5,340 men safely ashore. And thankfully, there were only two casualties in the sinking. So this was a very orderly sinking and escape from the president Coolidge. Yeah, thankfully. Crazy. Yeah. And then the SS Coolidge went down with a really key cargo for the, uh, for the United States military. She went down with almost 600 pounds of quinine, which is a medicine that's actually meant to treat malaria among other things. And this was right before the Guadalcanal campaign. And if I remember correctly, more people died from malaria, almost from bullets uh, in Guadalcanal than, uh, you know, like I said, from bullets. So quinine was desperately needed, and we just lost 600 pounds of it, which was essentially the entire stock of quinine held by the U.S. military. So this was not a good situation from a logistics and troop standpoint. Anyway... The United States military had three uh, boards of inquiry that looked into the sinking of the, uh, of the, SS, uh, the SS Coolidge. And ultimately, they found that they found exactly what I was talking about, that civilian ships did not receive the proper tactical information in order to remain safe. And ultimately, uh, Captain Nelson and a few other of her officers received citations uh, I should say honorary citations from the U.S. military for their safe evacuation of the ship and, and beaching her to make sure that everyone could get off safely. 
Now, uh, unfortunately, there were going to be some heads to roll, but one of them was actually supposed to be Admiral William Bull Halsey, and his head was supposed to roll, but he was essentially the lead admiral of the U.S. Navy besides, uh, besides Admiral Chester Nimitz. So even though his lack of providing knowledge to civilian ships caused this whole thing, it would ultimately he would skate by. And we'll be talking about him in the next episode. He kind of bungles things again, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to finish it up with the, uh, with the President Coolidge, she is actually a ship that you can dive on fairly easily. She's considered the largest easily accessible shipwreck in the world and one of the best preserved. And apparently you can go and see her, see her wreck with barely any gear. I think it's just, you have to wear flippers and a scuba tank. That's it. Hmm. So she's, uh, she's considered one of the, one of the best preserved uh, in shallow waters. So, I'm impressed given, given where she is. And also, you know, I, I would love to dive on a shipwreck. Would you, Will? Yeah, that would be really cool. I've never done something like that, but that would be pretty neat. I keep, I, my mom is yeah. a certified diver. So I keep telling her that she needs to go dive Scapa Flow. And she's like, I'm not oh. doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's cold for one thing. Yes, that's primarily why. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that is the SS President Coolidge of the American Presidential Lines. Will, I believe you have a ship of the week. I do. So first off, a little aside about APL or American President Lines. So Wade mentioned that it had previously been called the dollar line. And one thing that really kind of cracks me up about this is that their funnels were uh, red and blue. And on the big blue stripe in the middle, I think it was, it was either blue or red, the, the stripe in the middle, um, had it, just a giant dollar sign on it. And so if you can picture, you know, these ocean liners with these giant dollar signs on the funnels, it, it just looked almost like something out of a cartoon, like, you know, many, many, many. But actually the name came from the founder of the company, Robert Stanley Dollar. So it, it actually had nothing to do with money, but that they picked the dollar sign as their symbol. APL, the American President Lines, is still around. Um, as, as we mentioned earlier, they're now owned by CMA CGM, but they are still one of the largest shipping container companies. They, and they have recently resumed passenger service, which I think is pretty cool. You can now buy a ticket on a APL container ship to sail from San Francisco to Tokyo, if you so desire. I believe it's a 42-day trip. It costs over $5,000, and there's no amenities. But, you know... It's an option. So um, I just think that's kind of cool that you, they now have sort of brought that back. Uh, so my ship of the week is um, from another major Trans-Pacific passenger line, and that's what's referred to as the Matson line. Uh, and the Matson line is really a Hawaii-specific company. So it was founded by William Matson, who is, a, um, I believe, a German immigrant. And he founded the Matson line in 1882 to provide cargo services and limited passenger services to Hawaii. So this was back when Hawaii was still the kingdom of Hawaii, an independent nation. So Matson goes way back. And uh, his daughter was named Lurleen Matson, and that name was named after the yacht 
that he used to be the skipper of for another family called the Spreckles family. And so their yacht was called the Lurleen. And William Matson was the skipper of that yacht. And Lurleen was named after Lorelei, who was the Rhine River siren. So that's where that name comes from. So the name Lurleen became very important to the Matson line um, because he started naming his ships after his daughter, Lurleen. And so there have been six Lurleens in the Matson line. So that's kind of their, their classic name, kind of like, you know, Cunard has kept the name Queen Mary around or Queen Elizabeth around. Um, Lurleen is kind of Matson line's equivalent. His early passenger ships in the early part of the 1900s actually were among the first to have engines aft, um, which is now, you know, how almost all cruise ships do it. So they had the funnel at the extreme aft end of the ship and then uninterrupted passenger space for the rest of the ship. So very innovative. Um, but that actually didn't stick around. So in 1926, Matson decided that they wanted to really start to boost tourism in Hawaii and to develop that market for them. And up until this point, they'd still been primarily a cargo company. And then they decided to really get into the passenger business. So in 1926, they, they ordered a first-class liner, the SS Malolo, which was a beautiful ship. She had two funnels, and she was capable of 22 knots, which made her the fastest ship on the Pacific, which was, was kind of slow by Atlantic standards by that point. But in terms of Pacific ships, that was fast. And she was designed by a rising star in the U.S. You know, maritime engineering field, William Francis Gibbs. So the Malolo entered service in 1927, and immediately on her maiden voyage, she collided with a Norwegian freighter, which was not good. But in contrast to another famous ocean liner that had a collision on her maiden voyage, the Malolo managed to get herself back to her home port under her own power with no casualties. She was repaired and went back into service. So that already showed Gibbs's commitment to safety. The Malolo was an immediate success. And so Mats and Lions decided to expand their service by building three more large ocean liners that were slightly bigger than the Malolo, but based on the Malolo's design. And these became the Mariposa, the Monterey, both of which entered service in 1931, and then their final fourth flagship liner, the Lurleen, which entered service in 1933. These were all trans-Pacific ships, so they, I think the Mariposa and the Monterey would go all the way to Australia and New Zealand. And then the Lurleen and the Malolo would trade off going to uh, Hawaii. So they had two different routes that they would service. And Malolo, as an aside, is the Hawaiian word for a flying fish, which I think is kind of fun. They also changed their livery around this time. So when the Malolo was first built, she had the classic Matson Lines rust red hull color, which they decided they didn't really like. And so for their other passenger ships that they built, and then they later repainted the Malolo to match, they all had white hulls. And so they became known as the great white ships of Matson. These all had beautiful, gracious interiors, um, lots of amenities. Some of them had some early, uh, what they called lanai suites, which had balconies, which was a, a, an early innovation for these ships. Also, the Malolo was one of the first ocean liners to have what are called nested lifeboats, where the lifeboats are on a lower level as opposed to up at the top of the superstructure. Although during a later refit, they actually moved it up to a more traditional position. So the Lurleen was the best and the biggest of these ships. Um, she was 18,000 tons and 632 feet long. And like the other three, her top speed was 22 knots, but her cruising speed was 19 knots. Her capacity was a total of 715 passengers 
475 in first class and 240 in tourist class. And then she had 359 crew members. So, you know, considering that, you know, the Coolidge was not much larger than the Lurling, but had a much larger passenger complement, you can see why these ships were considered so luxurious because there was so much space per passenger on each of these ships. And uh, shrewdly, the Matson lines realized that they needed to completely develop the tourist experience in Hawaii instead of just offering how to get there. They, need, you know, they wanted there to be something for you to do once you got there as opposed to just offering the service for transportation. So they built the Royal Hawaiian Hotel on Waikiki Beach, which is now considered the most famous and classic hotel in Hawaii, also referred to as the Pink Palace because it's pink. Um, and uh, that was built in kind of a Spanish um, mission style. And it's become a very iconic building in Honolulu. And then uh, it was only the second major hotel built on Waikiki. The first major hotel built on Waikiki was the Moana Surfrider Hotel, which was built even earlier, I think in 1908, so a, a very long time ago. And the Moana Surfrider actually was also purchased by Matson Lines in 1931. And so at, right when the Lurleen um, was entering service, they already owned both of the major hotels on Waikiki. So they really had the whole thing, you know, set up. They, you know, start to finish for your vacation, essentially. So they were really, Madison Lines is considered primarily responsible for developing the Hawaiian tourist market, which is kind of cool. So uh, the four white ships of Madison were in service throughout the 1930s. And then as World War II began in, the 19, in 1941 for the U.S., they entered service as troop ships, as did most other major liners. Interestingly, the Lurleen was en route from Honolulu to San Francisco when the war broke out, when the Pearl Harbor attack happened. And there's actually a conspiracy theory that the Lurleen actually intercepted Japanese radio transmissions, which could have warned everybody about Pearl Harbor, but for some reason didn't send them on. I don't know if that's true or not, but that led to a, you know, kind of a Pearl Harbor was an inside job conspiracy theory down the road. So anyway, they all gave distinguished service during World War II. All of the ships survived. But after the war, they did not all return to the service of the Matson line. Um, the Malolo, which had since been renamed the Matsonia, eventually became the Queen Frederica uh, for another shipping company. And um, the Mariposa became the Homeric for Home Lines, which was an Italian company. But both the Monterey and the Lurleen went back into service with Matson lines. The Lurling received a $20 million renovation in 1947. So that was a lot of money back then um, to fully you know, transform her back into a luxury liner. This work was carried out at the Bethlehem Steel Alameda shipyard. She'd also been built by Bethlehem Steel, but at their Quincy, Massachusetts yard. And uh, so as soon as she re-entered service in 1948, she was once again the premier ocean liner and most luxurious ship on the Pacific. And uh, during the 1950s, the Monterey also re-entered service, and the two of them provided a first-class-only service. So they got rid of tourist class, and they were all first-class ships. So these were really, you know, high-class high ships. And then eventually what ended up happening um, was they renamed – Masson did this a lot, and this confused people. So the Monterey – okay, well, let me back up. So the Malolo, the original of the four white ships – was renamed the Matsonia before World War II. But then after she was sold on after World War II, the Monterey, one of the other white ships, was renamed Matsonia. 
to re-enter service alongside the Lurleen. So there's actually two different Matsonias and ne neither of which were built with that name, which is really confusing. But anyway, um, the Lurleen and the Matsonia X Monterey carried on that service through the 1950s. And then in the late 50s and early 60s, they decided to expand their service further and they retrofitted two freighters into two new liners, which they named Mariposa and Monterey after their other ships. And what's really weird about this is that the original Monterey, now Matsonia, was in service alongside the new Monterey. And so if you're not confused yet, I, I'm proud of you. Anyway, um, the, the new ships, the Matsonia and the Lurleen continued in service to Hawaii. And then the Mariposa and the Monterey did the all the way across Trans-Pacific service to Australia. Uh, and our family has kind of a cool and special connection to these ships because uh, my great-grandfather was working in the Harbor Master's office in San Francisco, and his job was to come up with all the loading arrangements for the Lurleen and other Matson ships that were coming into San Francisco Harbor. So we actually have a lot of Matson memorabilia that he was given by the company kind of as a thank you for helping them out with this. And so we have menus from, I think, the Monterey on the wall at home, which is kind of cool. Um, and uh, so, yes, we got a connection to that. And uh, we also have a, a connection to the general Trans-Pacific cargo trade because in all, this, is, this whole story is probably for another time. But my great, great uncle was actually Shanghaied in the 1930s which is a term for when a shipping company would exercise a legal loophole that existed in longshoremen's labor union contracts. And he was actually forced to work on a tramp steamer in the Chinese area for three years. And everybody thought he was dead until he came back. So we, uh, we were involved in the Trans-Pacific trade. Uh, anyway, the Lurleen remained extremely popular until 1962. Um, and uh, what ended up happening in that year was jet airliners, you know, the, the bane of the ocean liner's existence had started to become a problem in Hawaii as well. And so in 1962, the Matsonia X Monterey was laid up and they decided to soldier on with just the Lurleen. But then the Lurleen developed engine trouble only a couple of months later. And so then she was laid up and they decided that repairing the engine was going to be too expensive. And uh, so they decided to sell the Lurleen to Chandra's Lines, which was a Greek company that had also, they were really known for rehabbing secondhand ocean liners. Probably their most famous one was the SS America, which became the uh, Australis. So the Lurleen was sold to Chandra's in 1963. And this caused a huge uproar because Matson's remaining loyal clientele was like, what? You can't sell the Lurleen. The Lurleen's the flagship. You know, what, what are you doing? So in the last confusing name decision, the Monterey, which was now the Matsonia, which was still in, you know, layup, was brought back out of retirement and renamed the Lurleen. So there's now a second Lurleen. And because Boy. these two ships were sister ships, they looked identical. And so I think the idea was that they hoped they were going to basically fool everybody into thinking that it was the same Lurleen, but it was in fact a different Lurleen. So you can't fool people. Yeah. So anyway, the Lurleen was bought by Chandras and taken to England, uh, where she was given a major refit, which boosted her passenger capacity from her original 715 passengers to 1,668. So major increase, and that just shows how much space they had given everybody originally. 
They also modernized her superstructure. They gave her new streamlined funnels and she was renamed the Elinus. And the Elinus was that then became the premier cruise ship in the Australian market um, until 1981 when she was finally laid up. And by this point, she had been in service for almost 50 years, which just shows you know, how well built these ships were. And there was talk of trying to do something with the ship, but um, they ultimately decided not to. She was sold in 1986 and she was scrapped in 1987, but the story is not completely over because I don't know if you remember the Monterey, which became the Matsonia, which became the Lurleen. Okay, so at this point, Chandris also bought that ship. And so that ship was purchased in 1970 by Chandris because they loved, they loved the Lurleen so much that they're like, hey, let's buy her sister ship too. Matson ceased passenger service in 1970. At this point, the Lurleen X Matsonia X Monterey was their only remaining passenger ship and they sold that to Chandris. So there's a lot going on here, but basically Chandris took the X Lurleen, X Matsonia X Monterey and renamed her the Britannis. Now, when the original Lurleen, now the Elinus, was scrapped in 1987, they realized that the engines were the same as the engines of the Britannis, and the Britannis was still in service. So they took the engines out of the Lurleen in case they ever needed to be replaced on the Britannis. And that, of course, turned out to be uh, a, a prescient move because that is, in fact, what ended up happening. They ended up putting the engines into the Britannis, or at least parts of them, and the Britannis continued in service until 19... I think, yeah, she was still in service until 1994. So let's let that sink in for a second. Wow. This ship entered service with Matson in 1931, and she remained in service as a cruise ship until 1994. Okay, so that's really incredible. She was then chartered by the U.S. government as a floating barracks in Guantanamo Bay. Um, and then she got laid up in Tampa in 1996. So then uh, by this point, Chandra's was shutting down the cruise line brand that she was under because they were trying to focus on Celebrity, which was their other cruise brand, which is still around. And um, they ended up selling the ship to a company in Liechtenstein, of all places, in 1998. And so then this Liechtenstein company decided they wanted to scrap the ship and get the money out of it. But these ships are indomitable. The Britannis, ex Lurleen, ex Matsonia, ex Monterey, lots of names here was not having it. She did not go to the scrapyard and instead she capsized and sank off of Cape Town, South Africa on October 21st, 2000. So this ship had an incredibly long and incredibly varied career. Um, now you might be asking, uh, is the Lurleen story over now that all of this has happened? And the answer to that question is no, because Boy. is still in the cargo business. And they are still one of the, they are still the largest cargo export company that, that brings cargo to Hawaii. And on June 17th, 2019, AKA about five months ago, the Lurleen 6 was launched in San Diego. And she is the new flagship of Matson's cargo fleet. She is a container ship with um, cargo roll on, roll off capability. Um, she is the largest ship ever built for Matson. She's 870 feet long and 50,000 tons. And she has a top speed of 23 knots. And as all Madison ships in their history have been, she was built in the United States at General Dynamics NASCO shipyard in San Diego. So the Lurleen name lives on. 
Matson lives on. I'm hoping that maybe at some point they may get back into the cruise business. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but they are still very much active in the cargo business. They actually recently moved their headquarters from Oakland to Honolulu, but they are still headquartered in the U.S. and are a U.S.-owned company. So um, the Lurleen legacy continues, but uh, hope you, you guys were all able to follow Matson's crazy name changes. But um, four classic ocean liners not to be missed. We love them, and we're glad that we had them as long as we did. Man, I can't imagine changing names that, that much. That's nuts. Yeah, it was pretty but- crazy. Yeah, well, I hope I hope you all have enjoyed this episode because I can hear water coming back into the dry dock. We are definitely out of time this time. I got to say, these two ships that we've talked about have definitely, I think, summed up what the uh, what the transit the Trans Pacific trade uh, was like, and also what would set up uh, also gave hints as to what would set up the situation in the Pacific for our next episode. And all I will say as a teaser for that, David fells Goliath. Yeah. And one last aside that I'd like to throw in real quick is that the trans-Pacific trade was in many ways considered the last frontier of ocean liner trade. And as late as 1958, so pretty late in the game, because, you know, the jets were coming in, APL had serious plans to build their flagship, the President Washington, which was supposed to be a near copy of the SS United States. So like a big one (laughs) and uh, that never ended up happening, but it was an interesting aside. So uh, anyway, thanks for listening guys. And we will catch up with you next week for the most dramatic naval battle in us history. Yeah. And this guy made it even more dramatic in the book bookies writing. Look for it. (laughs) All right. We'll see you guys next time. Okay. If you have critiques, you can find us on email at in the dry dock podcast at gmail.com. But as for now, fair winds and following seas.